Well, this morning we're continuing to meet Jesus in Mark, and we're in chapter 7. You'll find it really helpful if you've got that chapter open in front of you this morning. I'm going to refer a little bit, first of all, to the background to that passage that we just read. And so you will find it helpful if you've got those earlier verses in front of you. The Pharisees have been scandalized amongst themselves that the disciples of Jesus would eat bread without first going through all the ceremonial and ritualistic washing of hands, along with all the palaver of preparing utensils and dishes that went with it. And you'll see that's mentioned in verses 3 and 4 of the chapter. The Pharisees, you see, followed a religion that had been reduced to nothing more than meticulous rule-keeping, which had become based on a set of man-made traditions. Now, those traditions, at the outset, did have their origins in all the Old Testament scriptures. But over the years, they've taken on a life of their own. And the result of that is that by the time you get to the New Testament, the Pharisees had a deep respect for God, but they had no love for him. They had all kinds of knowledge, but they had no understanding. Those two things are not the same. They were preoccupied with maintaining outward appearances, but they gave no thought to the heart. They thought that by seeking to remain clean on the outside, the inside must be okay. They were convinced that by such fastidious obedience, and only that, that that merited something before God. Now, it's not my main topic this morning, but in those opening verses of chapter 7, there's a great lesson for us there in the dangers of how easily man-made traditions can twist and distort both the life of the church and the true worship of God. There are traditions within evangelical churches which are right to maintain because they are traditions which can clearly be shown to be taught in the Bible. And they can clearly be shown to be necessary as part of Christian life and worship. For example, it is not wrong to say that believers' baptism and the Lord's table are part of our tradition. It's not wrong to use the word tradition in that way. But that's not the same thing as saying that it's our tradition to meet on Wednesdays for Bible study and prayer. They are two very different types of tradition. And we need to understand that the word tradition can be used and applied in different ways. Baptism and the Lord's table, they are traditions which are clearly established for us by God in the Bible. And they cannot and they must not be abandoned. That's one type of tradition. You can see, I'm sure, that's a good one. The second, like meeting on Wednesdays for Bible study and prayer, 
which is merely the result of human wisdom in seeking to provide a regular time of study when everyone knows the meeting is on tonight so that we can do things decently and in order. That's another type of tradition. Baptism and the Lord's table are mandatory because they are set in scriptural stone. Always meeting on Wednesdays is actually entirely flexible. That we should pray together, that we should be there when the church meets to pray, well, that is very clear in the Bible. But when and where that happens, well, that actually is a matter of liberty, isn't it? We don't have to stick to Wednesdays. We don't have to stick to evenings. But it makes sense to have a regular time when everyone knows tonight's the time we meet for prayer. Now, it's in the context of wanting to set in stone what is only a man-made tradition that the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of not following their traditions. One of the issues that their protest has raised is the belief that if you have not used the correct rites and rituals for choosing your food, for preparing your food, and then for the eating of it, then you can contaminate yourself in the eyes of God. In other words, you will become unclean. You will become spiritually impure simply by not doing these practical things. And the response that Jesus gives is quite startling. And even for us today, it's worthy of our very deepest consideration, what Jesus says. Because he talks about this, what for the Pharisees was an unbelievable uh, suggestion. That actually, there's nothing that goes in that can make you any worse than you already are. And actually, all the evil in all the world is in the heart of every single one of us from the moment of conception. That's the basic principle that Jesus is going to expand. Now, first of all, we're going to think about two wrong presumptions that people make. The Pharisees probably made this presumption and people make it today. The first is this that we start off in life good. The wrong presumption that we start off good. When you start to strip back what Jesus says in response to the Pharisees, you begin to see that there is some really muddled thinking going on in the minds of these religious people and that same thinking continues today. And of course, the nature which they have a sinful nature, which is the cause of their wrong thinking, is the same nature that all of us are born with. The rituals of washing that the Pharisees observe are based upon several supposed but incorrect principles. And one of those is, if I can prevent anything which is undefiled, anything which is defiled, if I can prevent anything defiled entering me, if I can prevent anything impure entering me, then I will stay undefiled myself. I can keep myself pure. But that's based on the presumption that I'm pure to begin with. 
And this is the belief that Jesus is rejecting and rebuking in verses 15 and 18. Your thinking is completely wrong. It's not about what enters you from the outside that causes you to be defiled or impure. The topic here specifically is about food, but actually the principle is wide. Of course, this belief that you can keep yourself pure presupposes that you are pure already on the inside, and my duty is to keep myself pure. Many people have this assumption. It's a belief that we find really appealing because it plays right into the hands of my great big ego, wonderful me, that's in the world. You talk to any primary school teacher and ask them how many times they have had to try and convince a parent that their little angel is actually of the fallen variety. What? My little cherub? They would never do that. They'd never do that. There isn't a bad bone in their body. Bless. That's what people think. You come across it all the time. Quote verses in the Bible which speak of sin, its types, its forms, its consequences. Many will agree, yes, of course there are people who fall into that category. Oh, that's not me. It's certainly not my little kid. You tell them that the Bible insists that we all begin from a position of total fallenness and nervous twitches begin to break out. Because if that's true, then this idea that I start off pure and therefore can keep myself pure all falls apart and gets consigned to the rubbish bin. This is one of the chief reasons why men and women find the gospel so offensive. Because of the realities about yourself that you have to accept if the gospel is true. And they don't want those realities. And sinful, proud hearts find those realities to be totally objectionable and completely unacceptable. Such accusation. Me? Sinful? Wicked? Needing forgiveness? Needing to repent? How dare you? Was that not once where you stood? Maybe there are some who stand there today. Me? In need of this Jesus? You really think so? But you see, that we all begin from a place of total fallenness is where the Bible begins our story. It makes it clear that it was not always like that. But it very quickly became the situation. In Psalm 51, we read these words, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, there are certain phrases in that verse that could be misunderstood. David, who's the author of that psalm, when he talks about being brought forth in sin, he's not talking about a sinful liaison that his parents had, which resulted in his birth. Nor is he suggesting by 
in sin my mother conceived me, that it was sexually a moral sin that was committed by his mother that led him to being conceived. No, he's talking about himself. He's talking about the sinful nature which he possessed from the moment of his conception in his mother's womb, with which he was born. And if you want that corroborated, well, you turn to Psalm 58 at verse 3. The wicked are estranged, from God that is, from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. That deals with any misinterpretation of Psalm 51. You use the Bible to interpret the Bible. It makes clear what the Apostle John was later referring to when he made this comparison in John chapter 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Go back to those two verses in the Psalms and you'll understand what the flesh is. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And we can see that this is, this is in full agreement with what Jesus is teaching in verse 15 of Mark 7 and in verses 20 to 23, which we'll come to shortly. In our sinful condition, we think so highly of ourselves, we can only think that it must be true that we start out in life as good people and that we have every chance of keeping it that way. But the Bible makes clear the awful reality that each one of us is born in sin. There's another wrong presumption, secondly, that we can cleanse ourselves. This principle lies behind these washings that the Pharisees observed, which is also a grave error. It's an issue that Jesus confronts them over again and again. They believed by the, because of this rigorous and vigorous keeping of laws and rituals, that even if you do accept that you start off sinful, you can achieve a state of cleanliness by means of works. So the one error is to say, well, you start off clean and you can keep yourself clean. But even if you acknowledge that you start off bad, the second error is that you think you can make yourself good, make yourself clean. Cleanliness, of course, being used here as a, as a, a metaphor for holiness and righteousness and purity. Now, this is a huge spiritual blind spot in most unsaved people. If you talk to them, they would like to believe that if you could convince them that this thing called sin is real, that they nevertheless, should they choose to and should they put their mind to it, they could live a life which would become good enough to the point where God no longer considered them to be sinful. Like the Pharisees. Self-made righteousness. They have it within themselves to do that. They like to think. Indeed, most people who will accept the notion of sin can't accept that they will be so sinful that God would reject them. 
for most of the time. Now, so strong is our desire to believe in ourselves like this. All other religions have within them this basic foundation of me living a certain lifestyle, performing certain religious duties, or a combination of both, which merits reward from God. It's found in all the Eastern religions, it's found in Islam, it's found in Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach it, it's found in the Roman Catholic Church. Do this, say that, perform this, give this, and the level of goodness and the degree of persuasion that God needs, you do it often enough, you do it well enough, you can get there. To depend entirely upon and only upon the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be justified, in order to be made right with God, in order to be reconciled with God, in order to be pardoned, in order to be forgiven, in order to be saved from your sins. In these great doctrines of the Christian gospel, you find something unique. But the fact that it's unique is not the only reason why we believe it. Its uniqueness is obviously very significant, but there's more to it than that. We believe it because this message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If there is one tiny sliver of positive in any of those other religions, and it is the tiniest sliver, it's that they do at least acknowledge that there is a void between us and deity that needs to be bridged. They do at least acknowledge that. We have no inherent right to expect that God is pleased with us or that we can do anything we like in front of him. They do at least acknowledge that in some form. But, big but, to presume that we can make up that lost ground for ourselves only further exposes the sinfulness of our hearts. This inbuilt desire to depend upon ourselves, our conviction that we can win over the favour of the gods only confirms our sinfulness. It doesn't help it. Now, this was graphically portrayed, of course, in the Old Testament on top of Mount Carmel, 900 years before Mark wrote his gospel account. There we find the prophets of Baal and Asherah performing every trick in their book of common worship to try and win the favour of the gods that the gods might pour down fire onto the altar from heaven. They spent the entire day trying. Indeed, they spent the best part of the day cutting themselves with knives and lances, until, says the Bible, the blood was gushing out of them. Surely this will be enough, they're thinking to themselves. What more can the gods want? What more can we give than our very own blood? But the Bible tells us 
There was no voice. No one answered. No one was paying attention. That will always be the case when in your pride you think you can cleanse yourself and placate God by your own actions. And in this passage in Mark chapter 7, Jesus reveals the real truth. The real truth. Our evil deeds come from within us. This is world-shattering news. This is religion-shattering news. The evil... We're so quick to want to blame the devil rather than ourselves, aren't we? The evil which comes out of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is, says Jesus, already within you. It's in your heart. Look at the list that Jesus gives. Who, who, which was the last picture of a newborn baby to be passed around, I wonder? Probably not too long ago. In the heart of that child. In the heart of that child. Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All tied up in the heart of that little one, teaches Jesus. These things come out of us from within. They defile your life. They manifest themselves in wicked words and thoughts and actions. You look around the world, you see the absolute mess that it's in. You see the sin in which our own country is declining and declining and declining. Every single thing has come out of the heart of men and women. It's been there from the moment of their conception in their sinfulness. We're very quick to apportion all the blame to the devil. So often it's me to blame. This is most important to understand, you know. There's a great debate, isn't there, about nature versus nurture. Are people wicked because they are inwardly wicked? Or are they made wicked due to external influences? Can you avoid becoming wicked if you are sheltered and shielded from wickedness? Now the Bible does not deny that the role that external influences play can be very significant both for good and for evil. But it also insists that the problem is primarily down to nature, not nurture. It's down to nature. A child may never have heard a lie 
in its entire short life. But it knows how to lie and it does it. A child may never have heard a single rebellious word in the home. But it knows how to defy its parents and it does it. Because it's in the child to do it. Now, we must pray for our children. We must be good examples to our children. I'm not for a minute suggesting that we don't need to worry about the example we give them. Of course we do. It's good to protect them from evil influences as much as we can. We must bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We must train our children in the way that they should go so that when they are older, they will not depart from it. But do not think for one minute that wrapping them up in spiritual cotton wool makes them less likely to fall into sin because it's already in their heart. Every type of sin you can imagine lies within the heart. Yours, mine. And it doesn't need bad stimulus to bring it out. Now for certain, bad example might bring it out more quickly, for sure. Bad example may drive it to greater extremes of evil, for sure. But you cannot actually keep your children from wickedness because it's already in them so how we really do need to pray for them we often pray for their protection and that's very good but sometimes we pray for their protection as if all the trouble is out there well a lot of the trouble is out there but most of the trouble actually is already in here we need to pray for them You need to pray that they'll be protected, yes, but you need to pray that they'll be saved by God's grace. That God will rescue them from their sin, their own sin, and from their own sinful heart. Rescue them and save them from from their own wickedness that already lies within them. And this also explains why temptations remain such an issue for Christians. Because we don't actually need outside physical stimulus. We've got all this in here to deal with. Which is why David prayed for a clean heart. That's why David prayed that God would put a right spirit within him. And that's why we all need to pray that for ourselves and for one another continually. You've heard it said that if you see, temp- if you see temptation coming, you should turn around and walk the other way. Now that's very good advice and I would strongly recommend that you follow it. But... Let's not kid ourselves either. You can lie down in your bed at night. You can close your eyes. And that temptation is right there in front of you all over again. This is why there are so many exhortations in the Bible. That we stay awake and alert and vigilant and diligent as followers of Christ. So many exhortations to take heed to yourself. To reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive in Christ and hidden in God in him. But you have to keep on in these things. To keep running the race. Keep throwing off everything that's hindering you. Keep casting off all the sin that will cause you to stumble. Keep your eyes fixed firmly upon Christ. All of these things 
the, the tense that they're written in is keep on keeping on in all of these things. And for those who perhaps have for the very first time started to, to realize the true nature of your sinful heart, I would exhort you to consider with us what the Lord Jesus came to do for sinners that sinners cannot do for themselves. We're about to remember it together in a moment as Graham leads us around the Lord's table. The broken body of Christ and his shed blood for sinners to do for sinners that they cannot do for themselves. To pay sin's penalty through his death on the cross. To secure newness of life everlasting by his resurrection. To rescue us from the depths of our sin. To cleanse our hearts to put that right spirit within us as we turn from our sins, as we take hold of Christ as our saviour by faith, as we're reconciled to God and given new life, new strength, new hope in Christ. You didn't start off good. No one has except one. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself in whom there was no sin. And even having acknowledged your sin, you cannot cleanse yourself. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. That's the gospel. His name is Jesus. And there is no other name by which you must be saved.